0: I think we'll, be, be ready. Uh, we'll move on to Josiah Bunting's paper, "Marshall's Men, Amer- American High Command in the Second World War. Let
1: me digest
2: lunch. Thank you.
1: Wash it down with coffee. <laughs> I uh, don't know the Gutman woman. I don't know the Nussbaum woman. Uh, I taught at at Princeton uh, last year. I had the lowliest of all possible academic posts a visiting lecturer. Um, The students there are quite normal. They all want to leave and run a hedge fund. (laughs) (laughs) And I would call their politics, uh, such as they are, modestly right of center. But they don't really think very much about that. Uh, H.L. Mencken once said, incidentally, he'd never met a college president whom he considered to be normal. (laughs) I've often thought about that remark. The president of Princeton has just announced she's retiring. I also would like to say something about the Episcopal Church uh, in the United States, of which I was once a member. Uh, They threw out uh, 30 hymns in 1982, including some good ones. Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide hymns like that. And threw them right out. Uh, The Methodist- On the grounds uh, of political correctness. I don't don't know what grounds. I can't really tell what grounds. Uh, That particular hymn was written by uh, James Russell Lowell during the uh, Mexican War. uh, as a protest against the the war, but it's it's a very powerful hymn. Anyone here know that? It's sort of a dirge-like medieval uh, tune to it. Oh, one more good reason for keeping church music in Latin. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. That's right. In the summer of 1960, Henry Steele Commager, a historian and professor of history at Amherst, wrote an essay for the scholarly quarterly Daedalus. It bore an anodyne title, <clears throat> 18th Century Leadership in America and Today. Commager's today was the summer of 1960. The presidential election loomed in the candidates, Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy. We may assume a climate of political assessment and gossip not unlike that of 2012. Uneasiness on each side were the likely nominees and an occasional expression of sentiments adverse to the state of national politics and the quality of men drawn to political life. Most persons in those days were men, at least who were in active politics. In competition for the Senate, And for the House of Representatives as well, virtually everybody would have been a veteran of the Second World War. Had you been, for example, uh, a Navy lieutenant in the Pacific in 1944, you would be about 40 years of age uh, in 1960. The parties themselves, a brief byway in this discussion, were far more polyglot within themselves than they are today. Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman's fiercest partisans in the support of American foreign policy in the war and right after were Southern conservative Democrats, a breed which we may say is almost extinct in 2012, conservative Democrats. Republican lions of the day included men of a distinctly moderate caste, Arthur S. Vandenberg, once an isolationist, later Congress strongest supporter of the Marshall Plan, Leverett Saltonstall, Henry Cabot Lodge, Prescott Bush, Everett Dirksen, a different time altogether. Nonetheless, why had the country not produced the likes of national leaders, political and civic, that had distinguished earlier ages, Commager wondered, and in particular, those present at the creation, the makers of the revolution and architects of the constitution. Commager who, was Samuel Eliot Morrison, had written a history of the United States, probably the most widely prescribed in the last century for undergraduates in good colleges, uh, called his text The Growth of the American Republic. And he found the stock answer, namely that great crisis brings forth great talent, unsatisfactory and that there had been but only one other crisis in American history to rival that of the Revolution and the establishment of the Republic in 1789. By way of refreshment, the first administration inaugurated in the spring of uh, 89 in New York City comprised the following. Washington, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, and Thomas Jefferson as principals. Henry Knox, as Secretary of War. The animating spirit in the House of Representatives was James Madison, principal author of the Constitution. The first Supreme Court Chief Justice was was John Jay. Available for counsel still, although he was near the end of his life, 90 miles away in Philadelphia was Benjamin Franklin. The last of the signers to die, uh, interestingly, uh, Tocqueville was in the United States at the time of his death was Charles Carroll uh, of Maryland, the only Catholic signer, former senator, and 95 years of age in 1832. Tocqueville was forcibly struck by the pathos and bereavement that swept the country at the realization that uh, we had lost touch with the last of these uh, great men. Commogers was an essay in that branch of history known to all of you called Prosopography, the scrutiny of groups allied in some common purpose, ordinarily members of the same chronological cohort, usually laboring in a common field of human endeavor, often in the same city or region or country. In comparing the American generation of roughly 1750, a birth year, comparing those of its cohort who took prominent roles in the making of the new nation, he compared their united genius, to the great composers of late 18th century Vienna, including Haydn, Beethoven, and Mozart, to the artists and sculptors of Renaissance Italy, the writers and poets of Elizabethan England, and inevitably the fluorescent culture for all seasons, it would seem, of the Athens of Pericles and Thucydides. How did they become what history remembers them as being? A British historian not long ago called that American generation of leaders born between 1880 uh, and 1900, civic, military, and political, which saw the country through the Second World War and especially through the early years of the Cold War the ablest in our national history since that of the founding from the point of view, and this is a wonderful triad, clarity of mind, disinterestedness, and magnanimity, a wonderful triad. Magnanimity must be stressed. The tribunes of the post-war cohort known to us all, a man called Walter Isaacson wrote a famous book on the subject as the wise men. Harriman, Bolin, Kennan, McCloy, Acheson, Robert Lovett, all men who worked at one time or another for George Marshall, a kind of austere paterfamilias to them, who bore Truman's impermator as the great one uh, of the age. Uh, incidentally, all of these men, with one exception, uh, had wartime experience uh, in the First World War or briefly in the Second World War, some of them wearing uh, decorations for uh, bravery. Who's was the exception? Kennan. Uh, cool. I'd like to talk uh, about one, cl- one cluster of men in this cohort, the American armies and, very co- coincidentally, the Navy's most senior officers during the Second World War and try to account, as Dr. Commager tried to account, for the character of their achievement and indeed for the nature of their own characters and minds. Why were they so successful? Why was their success or why has their success uh, resisted the corrosive, if sometimes illuminating, scholarship of their actions at that time? Indeed, they did come along at the right time. There's no question of that. But as a group, they seemed particularly well-framed to master the monstrous challenges of the large crisis of 1941 to 1945. Let me recite, very quickly, the names of those whom we are considering. Don't worry, you're not getting more than a sentence on each one, but we could be here for a long time. MacArthur, Marshall, Stilwell, McNair, Patton, Eisenhower, Wedemeyer, Mark Clark, Lucian Truscott, Omar Bradley, Tui Spots, Walter Bedell Smith, James Van Fleet. The first four born in the early and mid 80s, the last born between 1890 and 2000, almost all of them graduates of the military academy at West Point between 1915 and 1919. Note for the second larger cohort, brief but significant service in France during the First World War in its last month. Eisenhower and Bradley accepted. For them, it was a common experience, as it was for Marshall and MacArthur, both of whom had served in the Philippines during the last years of the Spanish-American War and the insurrection. Like the West Point classes of the early and mid-1840s, for whom 18 months service in the war with Mexico was most important to their education. They were to come into their heritage later on. The Civil War group, general officers, 15 or 20 years later, they knew each other, that is to say the Civil War group and the later cohort, and they knew a great deal about each other. Indeed, Longstreet, Ulysses Grant's friend at West Point and post-war Republican, wrote of his service just before the war with Mexico, service together and training in an encampment. We had very little to study, therefore we studied each other. And of course, in that war, that whole cohort uh, uh, ascended to high rank and frequently found themselves fighting each other and trying to calculate uh, from what they knew of each other's characters and education, what they were likely uh, to do. All of you are of a certain age, with the exception uh, of, of my 40-year-old friend, uh, but most of you remember names like Wavell, Slim, uh, Montgomery, Brook, all of that group, most of whom are familiar with those I'm talking about. Not all of the senior generals were graduates of West Point, but most of them were. There is a line, almost an Homeric epithet, which appears constantly near the beginning of chapter two of all American military biographies, an introductory phrase. Although a mediocre student at West Point,
3: <laughs>
1: the, the two exceptions were Douglas MacArthur and uh, Robert E. Lee. Everybody knows about MacArthur. His mother lived there in the hotel and watched him and <laughs> intervened all the time. and. Uh, MacArthur also, uh, when he was chief of staff of the army from 1933 until 1936, kept a 19-year-old Filipina mistress in the Wardman Park Hotel. <laughs> he visited regularly for 18 months, and his only fear was that his mother was going to find out. <laughs> How about that? How about that? Marbles wouldn't CNN have fun with that? <laughs> MSNBC. MSNBC. The Secretary of War, 1940 to 1945, uh, Henry Stimson, had been Secretary of War forty years earlier in the time of William Howard Taft, and on his selection uh, and on Marshall's selection of this cohort of uh, generals, younger generals, he congratulated him uh, for finding "quote good war men, men who like and supply your own euphemism." Uh, the, whose characters and minds are apt for mastering the demands of leadership in battle. Stimson believed that a an efficient uh, career as a field officer in peacetime was a very defective index to what you would be like in combat. What did these men have in common? There is no military caste in America. There is no such thing as a smart regiment. There is very little tradition of following one's father, and nowadays one's mother, to West Point or the Naval Academy or into the Marines. Somebody once told me that the children of Marines grow up to be poets. I don't know if that's true. (laughs) Of the World War II group, almost all were progeny of the American outback. They grew up on farms children of hard scrabble circumstances, Omar Bradley from Southern Missouri, the son of a rural school teacher, his classmate Eisenhower, one of nature's gentlemen, as Max Hastings says in an essay denigrating Montgomery. I'm sure you know that, Andrew, a child of Abilene, Kansas, who grew to manhood like all of these people, with one exception in strange circumstances. These men, West Point was simply a way out of dodge. Typically, candidates for appointment to the academies applied indifferently both to the Naval Academy and West Point. Like Harry Truman, another Missourian, they were self-reliant as adolescents. Their responsibilities to their families and farms were daily, unvarying, unrewarded, and unexpected. No praise was given. In many of these late Victorian households, American Victorian that is, The mother or the father regularly read to the children clustered around uh, her, sitting uh, her her chair in the evening, and not, in Ulysses Grant's phrase, novels of a trashy sort. (laughs) And and here Grant falters by (laughs) adducing the name Bulwer Lytton. (laughs) Bulwer Lytton, not a trashy novelist. James Fenimore Cooper, for example. In the case of Marshall, works of history and biography. The reading offered in a conviction that some element of emulation might be kindled in sustaining flame later in life. This is very much characteristic also of the revolutionary generation. You read Plutarch and you remember things about Plutarch, they get into your bones and perhaps later on you will uh, act like the heroes he writes about. In the cases of MacArthur and Marshall, Both both men born in 1880, to whom a rivalry is sometimes imputed, although I can tell you that Marshall did not do rivalry, early military responsibility in independent circumstances was important. That is to say, as very young officers, they had a great deal of authority. This was not a politically correct era. They were responsible to do things that nowadays we might call on colonels or general officers to do. Marshall, at 22, was virtually in command of the Philippine island of Mindoro. There was no, commis- uh, there was no communication of any kind uh, with uh, Luzon, let alone the United States. In Herman Wouk's novel of the American Navy <clears throat> of the Pacific War, the Kane Mutiny, there is a scene vividly re- recreated in the film made from the book in which officers who have taken over the ship during a typhoon, in which the captain, played by Humphrey Bogart, has lost control of himself, in which these officers, celebrating in an expensive San Francisco hotel dining room, they have just been found innocent of all charges, in which the victorious lawyer, Barney Greenwald, who has defended them, crashes the party, upbraids them, calls them novelists, Princetonians, socialites, etc. What have you been doing for the last 20 years protecting this fat, dumb country of ours for a pittance without recognition or reward in circumstances unimaginably taxing? Don't sneer at men like Kane. They hung in there. In the army of the 1930s, one typically was a lieutenant for 10 or 11 years. The American rank insignia for a lieutenant is a gold bar, and it was known as the bar sinister. You were not not promoted. There were only 145,000 soldiers in the whole army. There was not a single combat-ready division. Soldiers and officers had taken, in the last 10 years, two pay cuts. Uniform was not worn in Washington, where an archaic and inefficient staff system Funneled virtually every decision upwards to the chief of staff's office. But as Hugh Strong points out, officers committed to military careers in those days, the 20s and 30s, since there were very few opportunities for command, had time to think. Military theorists and tacticians were wise enough everywhere, it would seem, but in the United States not to infer lessons from the experiences of the Allies in the last few months of the war. Americans became interested in the war and what they could learn from it in the 1930s early, during the time that Marshall was head of the infantry school. In addition, a variety of eccentric careers within the military establishment flourished, without debit to an officer's reputation for not having commanded troops. In the American Army today, which is which is relatively small, about four hundred ninety thousand troops, you must uh, proceed uh, in a orderly uh, progression uh, through certain uh, uh, appointments. Uh, you typically might command a battalion as a lieutenant colonel, then you would go on the staff of a general officer, etc., etc. And if you do not achieve one of those particular stations on the cross, if you will, uh, it's not likely that you will you will become a a general officer down the road. The officer corps of the interwar period comprised less than 14,000 men. Of this number, No more than 1,500 were lieutenant colonels, colonels, or generals. Marshall, appointed head of the Army in 1939, having served as deputy chief of staff for more than a year, knew or knew about every member of this group. He was soon to prove himself fit for the accolade later given him by the American student of management, Peter Drucker, quite simply, the best discerning picker of leaders in American history. His powers of discernment in evaluation seem almost bizarre and they included a preternaturally acute sense of an officer's capacity for growth, for continuous learning, for versatility, and for the amendment of habits, for for receptivity to the new. On the Friday following the Japanese attacks on Pearl Harbor, Marshall had his secretary-general staff Walter Beadle Smith, then a colonel, had him put through a call to the headquarters of 3rd U.S. Army in San Antonio, Texas. Two nights earlier, a party of five officers had left Washington in the War Department with the mission of evaluating the Army's performance during the Pearl Harbor attack and coincidentally the Japanese offensive in the Pacific. Their plane crashed into the Rockies and all were killed. Smith's call to San Antonio was answered by the Chief of Staff of 3rd U.S. Army. Smith said to the man who only four months earlier had been a colonel in Washington State, and I quote him, Is that you, Ike? Within a year, Eisenhower, Bradley, Walter Smith, Mark Clark, Lucian Truscott, and George Patton were commanding the American contingent in Eisenhower's case, the Allied force in Toto in the, in the American war's first offensive, Operation Torch. As they say, the rest is uh, history. So this was an extraordinary uh, group of people who did come along at the right time, but they had, uh, they're, they're, I, I don't really have the language for it. There, there, there must be a word for that hinterland between brains and character these men seem to subsist in that particular place. Occasionally I will read a book that says things like uh, George Marshall, although, although not uh, the intellectual equal of the men who worked for him, and I always wonder uh, exactly what that, what that, that means. Uh, he achieved a, a beta double minus in calculus, and therefore, do you know what I'm, what I'm saying? Um, but they did, uh, that cohort, develop a, a way of, uh, of uh, thinking seriously about things at the same time they were, they were required to execute them and to, and to lead soldiers. And we have never been uh, uh, better served, in my opinion. Uh, I had to remind this group I taught at Princeton this year, most of whom were born two or three years after the United States left the Vietnam War. Most of them uh, here, are a couple of horrifying examples, had no idea who George Kennan was, who had lived in Princeton for 30 years. Um, John Pershing, never heard of John Pershing. Uh, these are all, quote unquote, very smart young Americans, but their general uh, store of, of culture and the kinds of things we learned. Uh, yeah, well, you all know that. Uh, as they say at Fort Benning, uh, is there any questions?
3: <laughs> 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 yeah. Deepak.
2: Well, it's very interesting because, you know, it has, in some sense, if you look around the world, and country, this is true of Japan, it's true of India, true They're in each institution. In India, of course, this is, this is modeled very much on, I mean, uh, the Brits in India under Clyde were a bunch of carpetbaggers. And then they created Hillary. Hillary was the one which created all these civil servants who went out. And then the empire. So the public school ethos, and yeah, they're not necessarily bright, but they created these causes who exactly what you described. I've known some people now, well, I'm 72, since I was 11. <coughs> now, these people, now these which were extremely important yeah. in uh, providing the leadership you want. Now, I think it's both in all these countries, in, in uh, Japan, it was Tokyo University, in all these countries now, there's been a Gradual, I can't call it dilution, but anyway, this element is dying. Yeah. And it's largely because of egalitarianism. No one yes. wants a lead institutions. Yes. And you cannot get leaders without you, if you have a lead institution. And it's happened in Britain, it's happened in India, it's yeah. happened in Japan, three countries and I think mean, it's happened in the US.
1: It's happening uh, in the US for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, the military establishment, relative to the size of the country, is tiny. Yeah. Uh, nineteen uh, the 1941-45 war, we had in uniform uh, 16 million people in a country of 130 million. Uh, the total now is about uh, a million four. Uh, the West Point classes uh, from roughly 1995 to 2000, uh, less than 50 percent of those classes are still in uniform. In uh, Eisenhower's class in 1915 when they had their reunion in 1940, only 5% uh, had left, uh, left the military. Mm-hmm. And w- what has happened has been that since the army is so small, uh, and since these wars in the Middle East uh, require a constant infusion of officers, you have a, a young 31-year-old captain married three children on his fourth tour in Afghanistan. And uh, pretty soon his wife says, you've, you've done your bit. Yeah. So we've, we've lost that. We also have an all-volunteer force. Uh, so many draftees became excellent soldiers. The army is resistant to any form of conscription because, quote unquote, they won't like it and they'll be surly and difficult. Actually, uh, most of them become excellent soldiers. So those are, those are, those are real problems uh, for us. Uh, most of the uh, famous American private universities only reintroduced ROTC uh, 18 months ago when the uh, homosexual provision was was dropped.
2: Andrew, yeah. I I've wondered um, if there was something about the Civil War hmm. and the, the fact that it, was, it must have been such a powerful memory to.
1: This generation. Oh, it, it, it's such a wonderful point. Uh, as Andrew knows, that this is basically where American ideas of uh, military strategy come from. But be, beyond that, uh, people like Marshall and MacArthur and, and McNair and Stilwell, they were educated by men still young who had fought at Gettysburg. Mm-hmm.
0: Jeremy. Yeah. Um, I thought that was wonderful to take it even further. Of course, the Navy, the United States Navy in World War II had particularly talented leaders and led the most successful submarine campaign, the most successful aircraft carrier campaign in history. But can I just take this a stage further? I mean, you're operating within the very traditional practice of American historians, which is an exceptionalism, national exceptionalism. Now, if you were to think about this on a wider level, compare the American army in the early 40s with, shall we say, the French army. Mm -hmm. The French army military leadership was much poorer than the American military leadership, despite the fact that France had a far larger army. I mean, size itself is not necessarily a key issue. And if you compare it with the British, I mean, Churchill, and Andrew will tell you more about this than I can, Churchill as Minister of Defence had to sack lots of generals. I mean... Uh, the British Army was just not up to the job. And there's a marvellous book on the British Army on the psychology of military incompetence explaining why the very nature of the British military, and I'd say this is still the case, is to often promote in, in peacetime people who just aren't up to it in wartime.
1: Mm-hmm they become secretaries of golf clubs according to Churchill Yes. <laughs> right now. So officers say, of the heavy blockhead type That's I should so <laughs> say that
0: what's really interesting is that in a sense the challenge here is to, to explain it is even greater because it's not just that the Americans did very well mm. they also did very well did much better in many respects than, than comparators mm. you know at that level of general officer I'm not saying that they weren't good general officers in the British case people like Slim were very, very talented, uh, and I'm not saying that there weren't one or two French generals that were good. But in terms of the core, uh, in terms of the core, I think the Americans were really impressive. Yeah.
1: Uh, Kevin, first, thanks for that uh,
0: walk. It was really interesting. <clears throat> Why didn't all this enormous talent show up in civic governance? You know, we have really, really good generals and officers around that time. The only thing the American government did right between the 1930s,
1: well, and maybe now, was was win the war. Uh, You've got really bad civic government in the 30s and 40s. You've got a very small period of fairly responsible government for a few years right after the war. And then it just all goes to hell. Did they just... Did they quit? Were were people not
0: listening to them? Or why didn't we get some sort of transfer of value out of that once the war was over? Uh,
1: As a generalization, I don't think... uh, a, a large cohort of people of similar talent and patriotic impulses were drawn to politics uh, in those days. Uh, the Roosevelt administration was was populated by a variety of talents uh, which did not largely include graduates of uh, Harvard Yale Princeton etc. You have to remember that the the northeastern United States the great so-called private the great private universities uh, were um, to use a slipshot phrase, right of center, uh, very late. Yeah. Uh, just walk through the chapel at Harvard or Princeton yeah. or Yale. They couldn't wait to join up uh, in World War One and World War Two. Norman Mailer went <coughs> to the post office the day after uh, Pearl Harbor, and not only that, they couldn't wait to get out and uh, and be shot at. They didn't want to be staff officers. So, but uh, those kind of people, I don't think, were attracted uh, to <coughs> politics in the in the uh, 20s and
2: 30s. Daniel. Yeah.
0: I, I wanted to ask, bring back to the present day, um, General General Petraeus, um, an outstanding leader, I would say. Um, I, I don't know whether you would agree, um, but who seems to have been moved out of an active command role in the field yes. uh, to run the CIA. Yeah. Um, is that a problem nowadays? That yes. uh, as soon as as soon as a general makes his mark yeah. on the battlefield, yes. he's kind of moved sideways yeah. or kicked upstairs. Yeah.
1: You know, the, the thing you have to uh, you have to keep in mind all the time. Uh, uh, Andrew Roberts' least favorite historian uh, talks about this: Barbara Tuckman. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> in all the pictures of the of the World War II high command, guess what you don't see. You don't see a bespectacled 45-year-old MIT systems analyst with a PhD. All you see are Slim and Wavell and Marshall. The Army and the Navy worked directly with Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, there was a Secretary of War and a Secretary of Navy, but these were more or less tangential figures. So I, I think that's very important, the stature and visibility of these uh, this cohort was much, much higher, and they were assumed to be people of wisdom and judgment that transcended military uh, affairs. Uh, nowadays, uh, most generals disappear, uh, or they go into uh, industry, uh, or occasionally they appear on NBC giving uh, commentary. But as far as their service in government is concerned, uh, it's it's very, very unusual. Um, there was some talk about Petraeus uh, going on the Republican ticket. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. But they scratched their head. They they don't know if he was a Democrat or a Republican or anything like that. A very a, a very able man in in a different time. I think you would have had uh, a more visible and important public career than now.
2: Andrew, yeah.
1: um, you know, I, I I have to say this. I was at uh, a, a conference last year at Harvard talking roughly about this subject. Why why can't we get people like these kids to go in the military? Uh, The dean of Harvard was a man called Henry uh, Rosofsky, and so far from being a shameless, unpatriotic liberal, he had been an infantryman in uh, Korea. And so he saw things things steadily and saw them whole. You know what offended him? He said David Petraeus was here. He looks like a prince of the opera. He has these things going down his back. (laughs) (laughs) He said, you see see pictures of Marshall, he had one forlorn little decoration. What's happened? Well, celebrity has happened. Americans require constant uh, attaboys and refreshments and things like that. uh, Andy? Andy?
3: You, you said um, that there's no military caste in America. I'm very interested in that, because um, there must be... One, one thinks of... You live in Virginia. The Scots-Irish of Virginia are supposed to have um, sent generation after generation to, um, to West Point. Is that not the case? Is that just a generalization? Not the case
1: anymore. Really? I don't think so. Uh-oh. Okay. No. All right, that's interesting. The, the other thought was... Um, that, that, that particular idea is, is not extinct, because in every war movie... Uh, the sadistic uh, Southern drill sergeant, yeah.
2: <laughs> and he always says, we he he always that,
1: says graduates of the Bronx High School of Science. And yeah. <laughs>
3: My other thought was um, that uh, Stimson, of course, was um, was a Republican, lifelong Republican. Uh, Obama appointed Robert um, Gates.
1: Um, his, best was, his best appointment
3: Yeah. Um, do you, do, whereas we're told of course all the time that, um, that there is no more bipartisanship um, in America do you, uh, do you agree with that and would you
1: regret it if it were true uh, I, I, I agree with it largely and I think it is regrettable and uh, one of the reasons is that Henry Stimson uh, who was the famous conservative republican of his time uh, there were no quote-unquote social issues uh, which defined uh, the fervor and authenticity of your conservatism. And I think that probably is a, a sticking point for, uh, for Republican nominations for various positions that would put you in a position where you might get picked for a cabinet post. Uh, I, I must tell you I know a, a thousand, at least a hundred Republican women who are conservative and who are pro life but they don't want the goddamn government talking about it or fooling around with it and that's that's really sort of a bar right now in the mm-hmm. Republican
0: party with and the support to, uh, the revocation of Roe v. Wade No
1: they would not I don't think they would uh, but uh, and, and the Republican Party in this election has to has to deal with that you know uh, any more but I said th- no. But I think uh, the question of bipartisanship—I uh, I don't see effectual uh, bipartisanship uh, in our, our future. And I talked before just briefly about this cohort of uh, Southern Democrats. Uh, where have they gone? Well, uh, the Mississippi lower house is still controlled by Democrats who are to the right of you, but that's really? the only place. <laughs> <laughs>
3: in the last uh, 20 years, I mean, a number of social controversies involving the military. I'm thinking of um, don't ask, don't tell, gays in the military, yeah. and women in combat, yeah. a tailhook, and others. Yeah. But to um, a conservative like me, looking in on this from the outside, this does look like the conquest of military values by what you might call yeah. the values of the academic media
1: complex. Yes. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I wonder, first of all,
3: if I'm right about that, and secondly, if I am to some degree I am, but
2: what impact has this had
3: on the relationship between senior military officers on the one hand and the rank and file on the other?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, only bad. Only bad. Uh, that's an idiotic uh, policy, as you know. Uh, I don't policy? care. I- idiot, don't ask, don't oh, do yeah. it. Uh, Let anybody serve in the military. If they misbehave, court-martial them. Yeah. I mean, this, isn't that the way to deal with it? That, that, that was Barry Goldwater. Uh, I don't know what what would happen to Barry Goldwater if he were alive today. He'd probably work for Obama. I mean, uh, no, no, it wouldn't. <laughs> but um, no, it it has had only a bad effect. Only a bad effect.
0: Irving Crystal once said that the love the love that formerly dare not speak its name is now the love that won't shut up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't uh, I don't know the answer to, to this. You don't know. how many uh, sitting members of the House of Representatives and the Senate? Have had military service. It must be a single digits. Hardly um, anyone.
3: I, it's certainly in the House of Commons, there's virtually nobody. Yeah. Um, I mean, on the fingers of one hand, I think it's fair to say, is that um,
0: small numbers, yeah.
3: yeah.
1: Did I read that uh, a field marshal is about to be created? Yes, uh, Charles Guthrie is becoming a field marshal. Uh-huh. And uh, is that the first field marshal since uh, Montgomery? No, Peter Inge.
3: Uh Um, So so that rank rank still exists. Yes. But, but it's absurd that it does because the army's been shrunk from 102,000 to 82,000 yeah. um, and uh, to have two field marshals um, for, for that is completely absurd
0: but what yeah. you do bring out is that there is uh, you're right about Guthrie and people like that there is in the upper chamber um, a, a, a certain amount of military expertise mm-hmm. um, um, I mean the last first sea lord for example is who's is, is a labour to be a labour peer is a, frequently speaks on defence matters and so there is mm. a degree of expertise mm. there. Yes.
3: and Dannet was, um, was advising um, the camera- Cameron, was leader of the opposition. Yes. Mm.
0: I, I think actually, this, although this sounds very paradoxical, I think probably in the parliamentary system at the present moment although it's small, the percentage of former military people is larger than it is in the United States, which mm-hmm. is very paradoxical mm-hmm. the other contrast is that because of the House of Lords, you can have, as Andrew was saying very senior people like Dannet whereas in the case of the United States the former military people in Congress are people who had a brave position as officers but generally junior officers but you don't get a practice of having former senior military figures in in Congress that's very unusual in modern America
1: Thank you Thanks
0: Uh, I think we'll have a 10 minute break and then we'll move on to Roger if we come back in 10 minutes
3: You mentioned the waiver